This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And sometimes the stories are fun, as you know, and sometimes they're, well, they're educational, and other times, well, we're just going to tell you the hard ones. And this is a hard one, but it's an important one. And this is the story of homelessness in the end, and we're telling a bunch of these stories. And it's a serious problem in our country that's mostly ignored, and the homeless, well, they don't have a voice. Well, Mark Horavath has experienced the highs and lows of the American dream, from a successful career in TV to barely surviving, homeless and addicted, on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. But he found his voice again when he founded Invisible People and hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their own experiences. Today, he's the online voice of his cause, and he's bringing their stories to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark is hearing from Eric. Eric lives in a homeless shelter in Traverse City, Michigan. He also works full-time as a cook in a local restaurant. Here's Mark. Eric, we're we're here in Traverse City. You're homeless. Yes, sir. Tell me about it. Don't recommend it to anybody. It is a very hard life to live, even when you're working. uh, It's hard to get to and from. I stayed at Safe Harbor for a few months, uh, trying to get on my feet, trying to get caught up with like child support and past due fines and stuff. And I work in kitchens, so it was hard. I'd get home at like midnight after everybody was already in bed and uh, wasn't allowed to take a shower a lot of the times, so only allowed one blanket, no pillow. Um, still got fed, but I ate at work. But for the most part, it's, it's not a fun life to live. So Safe Harbor is a winter shelter? Yes. Yeah. Um, but Just, because you work nights or late, it was cha- even more challenging than... Yep, and we had to be out no matter what at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning every morning, so I always had to be up early, even if I got home at 12, 31 o'clock, didn't fall asleep till 2, I was waking up at 7 to go walk around all day to walk to work. Yeah, winter shelters do the best they can, but they really are not set up for people that work second or third shift. No, not at all. Uh, that's for sure. Not at all. They're mostly set up for chronic homeless people get them inside so they don't freeze to death. Mm. It was close to work, so <laughs> I took advantage of it. But now I'm at the Goodwill. Today will be the first night here, and uh, we'll see how this goes. Now, you've been working. You've been homeless for some time, and you maintain a job. Yes. And you yep. said you like to work. I love to work. I can't, I can't not work. So most people, when they see a homeless person, the first thing they say is, get a job. Right. Well, you got a job. And mm-hmm. you're homeless. So the job's not helping you get out of homelessness. Nope, with between child supports and fines and the way the cost of living is up here, it's it's tough. We, we saw a, a tent earlier across the river here, or the lake or whatever it is. And uh, I mean, basically, uh, the people in the tent, they're working, and that's affordable housing. Yep. It's crazy. So I just met you in the hospital. We picked you up from the hospital. Mm-hmm. And you were in the hospital because? Uh, I was uh, attacked. And? And stayed for five days, had to undergo surgery uh, on the way back to Safe Harbor on my day off. And you were attacked by a combat veteran going through PTSD? True. 
and a very close friend. Wow. Can you tell me about it? I'd rather not on here. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's fine. If... Yeah, no, that's totally fine. Um, but being out on the streets is not safe. People don't realize there's so much violence from other homeless people, mm -hmm. and this is a friend, to also uh, kids come around and, uh, you know, their violence is increasing. It's not safe outside. And it's very hard. It's hard to get a job when you got to put your address down on an application, too. Because they see that, and then they want to know why, and how, and why you're looking for work, and why you haven't had work, and it's tough. How do you get around that? Experience. I've been doing what I do for 18 years now and have a pretty well-established resume and have the work ethic to back it up. What would you want people to know about homelessness that they wouldn't normally know? It can happen to anybody. One day you're on top, next day you're down. It can happen to anybody. Within an hour, you so can lose your house, your cars, your kids. So your homelessness happened pretty fast? Pretty quick. Wow. Mm -hmm. I come from Midland, Michigan, a wealthy town where Dow Chemical is and lost my house, my kids, my car to a violent relationship and decided to start over and still working on that. <laughs> um, what's your future like? My future is optimistic. The company I'm with is growing. I'm looking forward to hopefully running a restaurant of theirs one day soon. Uh, we're moving to a restaurant downtown here in the next few weeks, and they're going to turn the old one into a banquet hall. So they're going to be looking for more employees. I've gotten people jobs before, and we're still hiring if people are looking for jobs. Um, there's jobs out there if you get out and look, especially in restaurants, especially in this town. That's why I came up here, because it's... It's fairly easy to get a job up here in the restaurant industry. Yeah. Now you're, you said uh, uh, every time you're in the winter shelter, you lost stuff. Oh yeah. I've lost chef knives, I've lost a bag, tablet, um, knickknacks here and there. They just come up missing. It's no way to live. No. No, it's not. If you had three wishes, what would they be? A wife, a home, and a family. Great wishes. Uh, huh. Ten years ago. <laughs> yeah, you'll get them again. I hope so. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. You're welcome. And you were listening to Mark Horvath and Eric and a wife, a home, and a family. Those were his three wishes. He'd had them once. He's hoping to have them again. Invisible People, by the way, is Mark's 501c3 dedicated to educating the people about homelessness through storytelling, news, and advocacy. And there's no better way to advocate than to just give the microphone to the people we're trying to help. For more, search Invisible People on YouTube or go to their website at invisiblepeople.tv. Eric's story, Mark Horovath's story, so many homeless people across this country's story here on Our American Story.
This is our American Stories. Pistol Pete Maravich is widely regarded as one of the greatest players in basketball history. Also one of my personal hoops heroes. Maravich starred in college with the LSU Tigers while playing for his father, head coach Press Maravich. He's the all-time leading NCAA Division I scorer still with 3,667 points. And he averaged 44.2 points per game. All of his accomplishments were achieved before the adoption of the three-point shot and the shot clock. And despite being able to play varsity as a freshman under the NCAA rules. That's crazy. Maravich played 10 years in the NBA and is considered by many to be the best ball handler of all time. Just days before his death, on January 8, 1988, the 40-year-old Pistol Pete spoke to guests who gathered near the poolside of Jimmy Walker's house, an NBA All-Star. Also in attendance was singer Glenn Campbell. We'd like to thank Vision Video for giving us special access to this rare bonus footage you are about to hear from their fantastic uplifting movie the pistol the birth of a legend it's rated g here's pete maravich looking back on his life just days before his death i grew up in clemson south carolina and when i was four years old the only thing i ever knew was basketball much like glenn campbell sings and he's one of the greatest singers of all time there's just no doubt in my mind i used to listen to him in college i mean like it was unbelievable in college all the songs he sang tonight back in those days and by the time I was five years old, I was already playing organized basketball. My parents baited me into the game. They never forced me. And when I was seven years old, my dad came to me and he says, Pete, he says, I don't have any money to send you to college. You're going to have to get a scholarship. And if you get a scholarship, they'll pay your way. I only make $2,900 a year, and that's just not going to pay your way by the time you get there. And if you're good enough, Pete, you might even make it to the pro basketball. That's where the greatest players play. And there's so few. There's so few, like 1 in 20,000 make it to the NBA that play the game. And if you get there, you might play on a team that wins a world championship. And you'll get a big diamond ring, Pete, so big, and it has on there world champions, and you'll be declared as the rest of the team one of the greatest at that particular time. Not only that, Pete, you'll be able to make money. They'll pay you for doing it. They'll pay you for playing something that you enjoy doing. Well, from that day, my I decided to commit my life totally to basketball. I was dedicated, possessed, and obsessed by it. I was so dedicated to it, I'll tell you some of the things I used to do. We lived two and a half miles outside of town in Clemson, South Carolina, and I used to get to basketball and I'd dribble in all the way. I would not accept a ride. I would dribble in with my right hand and dribble back home with my left hand five miles a day to the gym where I'd play eight to ten hours a day. When I finally got a bicycle when I was about 11 years old, 10, 11 years old, I learned to dribble the basketball on my bicycle all the way in. It made it a lot easier to get into town, too, and I got there quicker. <laughs> and I dribbled the ball literally on the, by riding the bicycle. It got so bizarre that my dad came to me one day, and he says, Pete, come on, get your basketball, and let's go in the car. I said, where are we going? He says, I'll tell you when we get there. He went over there, and he went on this specific highway, and there weren't many cars there, and he said, now look, I want you to... Get in the back seat, stick yourself out that back window there, and you start dribbling the ball. I'm going to drive at various speeds. I want to see if you can really control this thing. <laughs> and so uh, I did that, and he'd go 5, 10, 15 miles an hour, and 20 miles an hour. And of course, if you realize when you're trying to dribble a basketball out of a car or on a bicycle, you got to throw it way out in front because he's going, <laughs> and it's coming back. It really comes back quick along with a lot of rocks. 
And uh, uh, to see the faces on the people that just happened to be driving by was uh, something in itself. It really was. I used to take the basketball to bed with me. I slept with the basketball until I was about 13 years old. I would get in bed, and I'd lay in the bed for one hour before I ever went to sleep, and I would repeat three things. Fingertip control, backspin, follow-through. Fingertip control, backspin, follow-through as I released it laying down. I was completely possessed by the game. I used to go around my house blindfolded, dribbling the ball, because I knew where everything was. Of course, to the dismay of my mother, sometimes I didn't, and I knew how to dribble the ball very fast out of the house. <laughs> I used to get the basketball, and, and I would dribble out in thunderstorms. Not little rainy, not sun showers, but thunderstorms, lightning, everything else. You couldn't even see. I used to sneak out my back window. I'd go to this little spot where there was a mud hole. It was kind of a real hard mud. And I'd start dribbling the balls of mud and everything splashed up on me and, and, and literally scared to death because of the thunder and lightning because I felt like if I could dribble in that mud and that water and everything else control it, I could certainly do it on a court when somebody was guarding me. See, I was so committed to the game of basketball. In fact, from the time I was five years old till I was 17 years old, I played over 20,000 hours of basketball. In the March Reader's Digest, they had a story in there about television and how it affects young people's minds, or any person. It wasn't for or against television. It just says how it affects one's mind. And it said that the average person, by the time he's 20 years old, sees 20,000 hours of television. And I kind of paralleled that with my life, 20,000 hours of People watching television, I've spent 20,000 hours of hard sweat playing the game of basketball. When I was 12 years old, it was my first time I ever played in a regular game for junior varsity. I made the junior varsity when I was 12. and I was, At 13, I started on my high school team and played five years of high school basketball. I was uh, four foot nine and a half and, uh, and when I was 12 years old. So some of you youngsters that think that you're not uh, you know, tall enough, uh, you will be. And so I, uh, uh, at that time, at 12, a reporter came up to me after the game, and he, I used to shoot the basketball from down here because I, I was too weak to shoot it from up here. And so I used to take the ball and take it and release it like this. And this reporter saw him, and he says, well, it looks like this guy is drawing a pistol. And he wrote that up, and that name has stick, stuck ever since. I just threw that in. I know that doesn't interest you at all. <laughs> but I just wanted to say, say that. But he asked me after the game. He came up and interviewed me. That was my first interview I ever had, and I wish it had been my last. But he said, what are you going to do when you grow up, Pistol Pete? And I said, well, I'm going to play pro basketball. I'm going to be on a team that wins a world championship, get a diamond ring, and make a million dollars. And he literally fell off his chair with laughter. And I said, what are you laughing about? He says, a million dollars? They don't make that kind of money. This was in the 50s, and that, that, he was right. But uh, I just felt like at some point in my life I would. My early church life was absolutely uh, probably zero. I was not raised in a Christian home. I was raised in, in a church home. I was raised with telling uh, Pete, you got to go to church. It's good to go to church. You, gotta, you need church. You need church, church, church. And my parents didn't really go to church that much. They went when I was a small baby. When we moved down to Clemson, uh, they really didn't have the time to go to church anymore. But they made sure I did go. So I went to a couple different churches. Wherever my friends went, I went. But when I got into church, I didn't ever hear anything. I never heard who Jesus Christ was when I was young because I didn't want to hear. See, I would sit in there and literally count ticks in my head, one, two, three, up to a minute, and that would go for an hour until I got out of there. I felt that if, some, if I was in this church for an hour, somebody in Philadelphia, L.A., Boston, or New York was playing basketball, and when it came down to get that scholarship, I would not get it. See? And I progressed on into uh, my teenage years. When I was 14 years old, it was the first time I ever 
had my first taste of alcohol. I had a beer at 14 years of, of age on the steps of the Methodist Church in Clemson, South Carolina. <laughs> and I liked it. I really did like it. I liked it a lot. And for something I can tell you young people here tonight, it's this. Don't ever take that first drink and don't ever take that first drug because it'll never be your last and it'll lead to destruction. Because that's literally what almost happened in my own life. 98% of all people in jails today started with that first drink. 85% of over 500,000 people in correctional institutions today committed their crimes while under the influence of a mind-altering substance, drugs or alcohol. And many of them don't even remember committing the crime. But that's what it'll do to you. And all of a sudden, uh, I this, this tremendous commitment that I had and everything else uh, kind of went down the drain. I didn't have it anymore, and, and uh, I'd played so much up until that time when I was 14, 15, going on to 16, 17. But all of a sudden, I had time on weekends to do other things. I saw the opposite sex for the first time in my life. You see, I was completely obsessed with basketball. I didn't do whatever other people did. My God was basketball. Their God was sex, alcohol, and whatever else. But I didn't see any of that until I was 14, and then I, my eyes opened up. And I enjoyed it, and I started getting into it. And then that toehold became a foothold, and the foothold became a stronghold, and that stronghold became an entire possession. I'm not scared to tell you here I was an alcoholic. I can't get people to write that up because I've never been to a clinic or anything. And all my friends drank just like I did, and they were alcoholics too. I enjoyed it a great deal because there's a great pleasure in sin. There's a lot of pleasure in it. Because if it wasn't, nobody would do it. When I was 18 years old, I was asked to go out to Lake Arrowhead out in uh, San Bernardino, California to a campus crusade for Christ. They asked me to come out there and do what you just saw here, what was called Showtime. They said, would you come out here and do your clinic, Pete? I said, well, sure, that'd be great. I'll bring one of my friends and we'll just come out there. California, I've never been there. That'd be fun. So we got in the car and I was just reaching my 18th birthday. Literally right before what was to be called the Pistol Pete era in Southeastern Conference basketball. And you're listening to Pistol Pete Maravich reflecting on his own life just days before his tragic death. One of the all-time greatest players and an idol of mine, I can't tell you how many hours I spent watching him on television, the rare times he would come on, and then trying to copy every single thing he did. Let's go back to Pistol Pete. And so I, uh, I drove out there, and we partied all the way out, and we had fun, and we chased girls, and we just were in every, every bar we could find and everything else. It took us three or four days to get out there, and, and as I drove up on this campus... I noticed that there were people sitting around praying and holding hands under trees and things of this nature, and I became very embarrassed. I didn't want any part of that, and I told my friend, I said, hey, we got to hurry and get out of here. I'm going to do this clinic and get out. These people are nuts. I mean, what are they smoking? And put that beer down. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to see him with this, with this beer. So I checked into this place, and it was for three days. And I asked them, when am I supposed to do my clinic? And they said, well, Pete, we're not sure yet, but if you just bear with us. We're going to have you over here with this group. And I said, what do you mean? What am I going to do? He says, well, nothing. Just nothing to do. We'll just put you here. Would, you, would it be all right? And was, I said, okay. So I stayed with this group. My friend went with another group. And for three days, I finally heard who Jesus Christ was. I wasn't concerned about that. To me, it was just a story. It was a story. It was nice. That's nice. But after the end of three days there... There was no impact on my life. 
We went out to the beach. Bill Battle, who was an All-American football player, and with a bicep as large as my thigh, said, we're going out to the beach. I'm taking this group with me. We're going to witness for Christ. And I said, what do you mean witness? What, what, what is this, Bill? What do you mean witness? What, what are you talking about? He said, you just come along, Pete. We just want to, we just want to show you what we do here. So I went along with him, and, and we went out on, on the beaches of, uh, uh, out there, California beaches, and he... He uh, uh, goes up to the worst-looking group. This was back during the uh, 60s. This is the most revolutionary time, the rebellious time in our, in, our, in our history, probably. It's led to so much of the rebellion today. And yet, he went up to the worst-looking group. Guy had tattoos all of his own, hair down here. He was smoking a joint, drinking. There was about four or five of them. They were mean-looking, ugly. They didn't smell very good. Everything. And I stayed way in the background. But you know, the Lord has a way to use people. You see, he went up to this guy who was the meanest looking guy right behind his head. He says, you know something? I would really like to share something with you folks. And this guy was literally going to turn around and punch him, I know. Because he turned around and he said, look, go right ahead. Because that bicep was right in his face. And if anything impressed me, it was that. That did impress me. I said, wow, how God gets people's attention. It's amazing. So they witnessed, and I don't remember. I think some of them left right away. They said, oh, you Jesus freaks and all this kind of stuff. And I just kind of turned my head. I didn't want no part of it. At the end of three days, there was a there was a thousand kids. And I was part of it. And Bill Bright, who's founder of the Campus Crusade, gave a message, much like Billy Graham, had an invitation for people to come receive Christ. Then he had them to come publicly and receive Him. Lo and behold, my friend was sitting next to me. He got up. I said, what, what are you doing? He says, Peter, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. I really don't know what to tell you. I've just received Christ into my life. I said, Kenny, wait a minute, Kenny, it's just something you ate or something, son. <laughs> and I grabbed him by the arm. I literally tried to steal away his salvation. I said, you, you don't go up there. You're embarrassing me. I remember saying that. And he pulled away and he went up there. He says, you don't understand. I said, no, I don't. And he walked up there. And I remember sitting there and saying, well, you're not going to get me, God. I'm going to play pro basketball, be in a world championship team, and make a million dollars. Boy, that's what I want in life. But you know, as I've reflected over that time, how many times I've cried and wished that I'd received Christ in my life then. You know why? Because God had sent me there for a purpose. Not to do a clinic. I never did one. Nobody even asked me. <laughs> but He put me there for one reason. Pete, come home now. Come home now because you're about to embark on a tremendous amount of personal tragedy and destruction in your life. And it doesn't have to be that way, but you're going to choose that way, and you don't have to. And I went on into college, and I did a lot of things in college. I've set, I've set something like around 50 basketball records from high school, college, and, and pro. The amount of trophies and awards and plaques that I have, the amount of, 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 of honorary mayorships and keys to cities that I have, except the time when I go to those cities and try to get the keys, they don't ever give them to me. It could literally, really, I'm, I'm not, could, could go around this entire pool area. Now, I have a trophy from 1972 in a box that's never been opened. It's six foot five inches and one, it's six foot five, one quarter inch tall, the exact height of me. I've never seen it. I've never opened the box. But they're all stored away. They, they don't really do anything for me. But I've had all those trophies, awards. I've had popularity. I've had fame. I had a tremendous amount of fame back in the 60s. Tremendous amount of popularity. Everywhere we went, we played before over a, right at a million people in college in three years, and that's pretty good. 
And I had all this adulation, and people wrote me. I got thousands of letters a week from fans. We idolize you, Pete Maravich. You're my idol. You're this. You're that. And I wasn't a role model at all. Not at all. I wasn't a role model for young people at all. None. Zero. And then, after my college, and I was all American, and I was uh, leading, I'm the leading scorer of all time in college basketball. It'll be broken someday. But I'm the leading scorer. I average over 44 points a game for a three-year period. I uh, uh, just hold uh, just all kind of records. Uh, my high school records are still held. I still hold the record for the All-Star game. I scored 47 points in the East-West High School All-Star game back in 1965. That's still there. It hasn't been broken, and some great players have come through there. And then I went into the pros, you see. And I had a lot of fun in college, a lot of fun. Too much fun. In fact, I was in nine accidents in college and walked away from every one of them. Not only that, one time I was coming home from putting on a clinic in Pennsylvania and I drove 700 miles and, it, and I stopped for the night. It was a halfway point. I went down to a local pub, local little bar, sat in there and had about two beers. And a young lady came over to me. I said, how are you, sweetie? I said, I'm just fine. She said, you mind if I sit down here? I said, uh, well, uh, suit yourself. So I was sitting there. I wasn't there two minutes when a guy came up to me, about six foot five, about 270 pounds. I said, what are you doing with my girl? I said, I'm not doing anything with her, sir. I'm just sitting here. I'm just having this cold beer here. I don't want any trouble. I didn't, I, you know, and he started pushing me. He started hitting me in the shoulder. And I grew up as a kid knowing that you never back down from anybody. I don't care what the odds. I wasn't going to back down. And I told him to get his hands off of me and all this. And before long, one thing led to another. And They said, y'all get out of here if you're going to fight. He said, yeah, come on. So I said, fine. So I got up and I went out quickly. And I made myself through the crowd and I got outside. And I st stayed behind the door. And I was really going to get this guy when he came out. But he never came. Of course, I didn't wait there about two minutes. And he didn't come. <laughs> you see? And so I said, I better get out of here. And I left. And I walked out to the parking lot. As I was walking in the back of the parking lot, out toward a, I saw a telephone booth where I was going to call a taxi to go to the Holiday Inn where I was staying. As I was walking out, I heard this guy came out and he yelled to me. And little did I know that another guy had gone around the other side. And they both had blackjacks, which I didn't know. And the guy, the whole story is that the guy just literally, they just hit me from behind and beat me up pretty good. As I laid there on that parking lot that night, that girl came up, and I was all blood, and she took a 25 automatic pistol, and she put it in my mouth and cocked it. And she says, you're a dead man, Pistol Pete. How about that? And I remember laying there, and from the depths of my heart, I said, yeah, kill me. Because then I'll have peace. And you've been listening to Pistol Pete Maravich. And he gave this speech not long before his death. Indeed, just days. And for people of faith all over this country, these are stories that they share with each other. And we, as a part of our American stories, share what are called testimonies when they're relevant and when they matter. And my goodness, does this one matter? But you know something? There's a God up there that overruled Satan that night too he overruled him and I know that 
And I went into the pros and I signed the largest contract in the history of sports. Not basketball, sports. At the time, it made the Guinness Book of Records. It lasted 30 days. <laughs> they started pouring out a lot of big money back then. And I searched all through the 1970s for what meaning there was to life. I had to know the meaning. What was the meaning? And I got involved in all kinds of different things. I was involved in yoga and TM. I was involved very heavily in ufology, philosophy. I was involved in different religions, Hinduism uh, especially. I was involved in everything. But the thing about it is none of it really satisfied me. They were just all brief interludes of satisfaction. Much like my life was brief interludes of just ego gratification, satisfaction. And all through that time, in fact, in 1976, I decided I was going to live to be 150 years old. And I got very heavily into nutrition because I was into Hinduism and I was into the karma and all these other types of situations. And I became a vegetarian and then a fruitarian and a macrobiotic and a mini-dose and a maxi-dose on vitamins. And I fasted 25 days and I sat in all kinds of different positions. And I was searching for life, friends. I was really searching for life because my life had no meaning at all. My life had absolutely no meaning at all. And at each one of these stops, each one of these stops, I had to have something else. It just didn't satisfy me. In 1980, I quit basketball. I just quit. I walked away from it because of immaturity and because of the fact that I just got tired of it all. I just got tired of it. I got tired of my life. And I became a recluse for about two years. I sat in my home. We had our first son, Jason. He was only one and a half years old. And I was sat there for hours at a time trying to teach him seven and eight-year-old puzzles because I, want, I wanted my son, Jason, to have what I didn't. I wanted him to have a high intellect. See, I wanted him to be an intelligent person. I wanted him to be able to go to the right parties and say the right things. I thought that was important. I really thought that was important. And so my wife used to come to me and she says, Pete, you really need to go see someone because you're really flipping out. I said, what do you mean? She says, you haven't left this house in two weeks. I said, yeah, I have. I, 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 you know, I'd go out to the garage and stuff. <laughs> but I was really lost. And in 1982, I went to bed one night. It was like any other night. Pete Maravich had all the material things you could want. I used to carry around $5,000 in my pocket in cash in 20s. <laughs> I never carried any change. But I had all that stuff, and none of it ever satisfied me. Not the money, not the wealth, not the success. And I laid there in bed, and I couldn't sleep. I didn't understand it. And all of a sudden, everything started coming up in my life. All the sin... Every sin I'd ever committed, and I've committed many, let me tell you, many sins in my life. And there's nothing hidden. And I'm not airing all my dirty laundry here. I'm not trying to. I don't want to give Satan any credit. But I can tell you this. It all came up. And it also came up when I was 18 when I could have received Christ. And it was 5.30 in the morning now. And I laid there crying with two pillows back up to my back with an unsaved wife next to me. And I was sitting there crying. And I said, God, I've punched you, I've kicked you, I've cursed you, I've used your name in vain, I've mocked you, I've embarrassed you, I've done all those things. And yet, do you really, I mean, will you really forgive me the things that I've done?
And I was about to get over on the side of my bed. And what happened to me doesn't happen to everybody. And what happened to me happened to me, and that's why I'm talking out of my shoes. Many people don't believe it. Many theologians don't believe it. Many people, many theologians don't believe in God. God spoke to me audibly right there in the room. He said, be strong and lift thine own heart. Literally audibly, I looked around the room. I was in total shock. I'd never heard anything like that before. And I was so shocked that I reached over and I woke my wife, just shaking her like crazy. I said, Jackie, did you, Jackie, did you hear what the Lord said to me? Did you hear that? You must understand, Jackie had seen me go through all kind of trips in my life. And she just kind of looked at me in a dark haze that it was at 5.30 in the morning and said, Pete, you really have gone nuts, haven't you? And she just went back to sleep. Jesus Christ changed my life. Money didn't do it. Women didn't do it. Friends didn't do it. Pastors didn't do it. Wealth didn't do it. Success. President being a company. Owning your own business. Having your own boat. I don't have much time left. And the time that I have, I'm giving to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I was sitting there and all of a sudden, about a year and a half ago, uh, my wife and I went through a terrible tragedy. Uh, I was restoring an old Victorian home and I'd just gotten back from China. Ten ex-NBA players went over there to play uh, six games uh, against Olympic teams. And when I'd gotten back, which when we were out for about a month, uh, some friends came over and we were showing them the house uh, that we were doing. We went upstairs. This old Victorian house has uh, 13 foot ceilings. And so to the top of the uh, floor, uh, it was about 14 feet, which would be, to give you an idea what that is, would be the top of a backboard. And so we had uh, these friends, we had our two children with us, and I, um, we'd gone upstairs with them, and there was no banister, so we told our kids to, you know, stay away from the stairs. It's going to be here a second. We were showing them, and as careful as we are with our children, uh, I'd forgotten that they didn't even really think about it. I'd built in a little closet in the upstairs room, and in that closet was an air conditioning vent, an old one that had been stuffed up with insulation. And uh, uh, it really happened very quickly. Uh, they both kind of ran in there. We didn't see them, and all of a sudden, it was like that. My wife heard a, a very loud thump, and when she uh, went back there, uh, Joshua, my little two-year-old at the time, wasn't there. Uh, I just kind of knew what happened, and I dashed down the floor, and I went in there, and I saw my little son lying there in a, in a pool of blood. He had landed, and impact had hit him directly in the eye is where he hit on this part of his head. He was in a semi-conscious state. I've taken CPR in the past, and my wife never did see him. I'm glad she didn't because it's something I'll, I'll live with all my life. Well, anyway, I picked him up, and he was just a lifeless little body. His heartbeat was so faint that uh, uh, I didn't know whether he was going to make it or not. But I rushed him to the hospital, and we, I got him there, and there wasn't even any doctors there at this particular hospital. The, the guy that was supposed to be there was off. He was in lunch or something like that. And it just so happened I had a Christian painter there and a Christian uh, carpenter, and they started praying. They found a doctor, and he came in, and they checked him out. And I was in prayer in the other room. My wife was uh, literally away with uh, just had lost it completely. And 
we didn't know what was going to happen to Joshua. About 10 minutes later, the doctor came out. He happened to be an eye surgeon, and he says, Pete, uh, Joshua's going to make it. And I said, thank God for that. I said, that's just great. He says, but uh, we've looked in his eye just very quickly, and it looks like all the muscles of his eyes have been, uh, of his eye have been torn away. So I'm going back in there and check him out, and, and you just uh, wait in here. I said, fine. I just went back in prayer, and my prayer wasn't that uh, Josh be healed. My prayer was, according to God's plan in Joshua's life, that it just be worked out. And so about 15 minutes later, the doctor came back to me, and he says, Pete, he says, I really can't uh, believe what happened. And I said, what's that, doctor? And he says, we looked in Joshua's eye just now, and it's as clear as a bell. Uh, there's no contusions. There's no uh, uh, there's no broken bones. His neck is there's nothing. I mean, it's just absolutely clear. Plus the fact uh, he's just going to be perfect. There's nothing wrong with him uh, except this massive swelling that has taken place. Well, that was just a little miracle in my life. And as I thought about this, I started reflecting back on my own life. And it's been that way in my life, hundreds upon hundreds of times that I've literally reflected back at the times that I really shouldn't be here. But I am here, and I'm here for one purpose. And you've been listening to Pistol Pete Maravich, one of the last talks he ever gave here on this earth. He suffered a heart attack, and he died on Tuesday, January 8, 1988, after playing a pickup basketball game at a Pasadena, California church. He was only 40. Quote, we were on a break and he walked up to me, said Focus on the Family's James Dobson, one of the nine players on the court with Pistol Pete. I asked him how he was feeling. He hadn't played in years, but he said he wanted to get back to this type of recreational ball. He said, I feel great. I feel fine. He took one step and fell. And Dobson continued, quote, I tried to do what I could, but he'd had a seizure. That was easy to see. He was jaundiced and his eyes rolled back in his head. His body was rigid. It was clear he was leaving. I called out to him, asked him not to go, but it was much too late. Pete Maravich died in Dr. Dobson's arms. The story of Pete Maravich in his own words, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for an American classic science fiction TV series that set the standard for all others that would come after it. Here's Jesse. The Twilight Zone is some of the best science fiction ever written. Created, produced, and narrated by Rod Serling, the series was shot in black and white for 156 episodes between 1959 and 1964. You're traveling through another dimension. 
a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. At a time when television viewers were familiar with standards like Leave it to Beaver, The Lone Ranger, and I Love Lucy, The Twilight Zone was a dark psychological thriller mixing fantasy with suspense in the dark hours of the night. My name is Talking Tina, and I love you very much. Will you shut that thing off? My name is Talking Tina, and I don't think I like you. My name is Talking Tina, and I think I could even hate you. After graduating high school in 1943, Rod Serling began his military career, serving in the 11th Airborne Division in World War II. Nightmares and flashbacks for the rest of his life. It influenced much of his writing. I was traumatized into writing by war events, by going through a war in a combat situation and feeling the desperate sense of the terrible need for some sort of therapy. Get it out of my gut, write it down. This is the way it began for me because I came back with 11 million other guys who had very similar problems. So it was not unique, nor was it not to be expected. We, were, we had very special problems that we were going to write about. He was face to face with death every day, and he used the unpredictability of death in his writing. I can't conceive of anybody not falling into this pattern who writes, has certain special loves certain special hang-ups, certain special preoccupations and predilections. In my case, it's a hunger to be young again, a desperate hunger to go back where it all began. And I think you'll see this as a running thread through a lot of things that I write. And part of creativity, of course, is being able to have the capacity to convey that kind of hunger, that kind of nostalgia, that kind of bittersweet feeling to those who have never had it. Throughout the 1950s, Rod Serling established himself as one of the most popular names in television. He was also famous for criticizing the motives of other television writers at the time. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced that 90% of the writers who walk around laying claim to the honored sobriquet of writer are thinking in a sizable portion of their mind, uh, will they love it in Des Moines? Will they understand it in New Orleans? And consequently will deliberately prostitute and write downward. To what, to what they believe is the lowest common denominator. And when you start to preoccupy yourself, I think you're in trouble. Because I am writing in an art form, the whole function of the art form is to be translated to other people. There's a, an, an emotional experience to be shared. Consequently, it isn't just me and my tower. It's how people will react to what I write. Serling began his professional writing career in 1950, earning $75 a week as a network continuity writer for WLW Radio in Cincinnati, Ohio. By the winter of 52, he gave up the security of his paying job to take a chance at freelance television writing. He dropped everything and moved his wife and kids to New York. The immediate motive at the time, the prodding thing that pushed me into it, was that I'd been writing for a Cincinnati television station as a staff writer, which is a particularly dreamless occupation composed of doing commercials. As I recall, there was a, uh, a drug, a liquid drug on the market at the time that uh, could cure everything from arthritis to a fractured pelvis. And I actually had to write testimonial letters. And on that particular day, I just had it. And though I had been freelancing concurrent with the staff job, the best year I'd ever had, I think we netted about $700.
which is hardly even grocery money. And that one night, we just decided to, you know, sink or swim and go into it. When television was new, shows aired live. But as studios began to tape their shows, the business moved from the East Coast to the West. The same companies who sponsored the shows were often involved in editing and censoring the programs as they saw fit in order to protect their brands from what they considered to be controversial subject matter, situations, or competing product placement. And now, Mr. Serling. This cigarette gives all the advantages of extra length and much more. The great taste of 21 vintage tobaccos grown mild, aged mild, and blended. Serling was often forced to change his scripts after corporate sponsors found something they didn't like. He soon realized that the only way to mitigate such drastic sponsor influence was to create his own show. We have what I think, at least uh, theoretically anyway, because it hasn't really been put into practice yet, a good working relationship. We're in questions of taste, in questions of the art form itself, in questions of drama. I'm the judge because this is my medium and I understand it. I'm a dramatist for television. This is the area I know. I've been trained for it, I've worked for it for 12, in it for 12 years, and the sponsor knows his product, but he doesn't know mine. So when it comes to the commercials, I leave that up to him. Serling was demanding a new kind of relationship with the advertiser, one that protected both the integrity of the program and the dollar of the advertiser. Rod Serling felt so strongly about protecting his content that he produced videos for companies that were interested in buying time on his show. He was making it clear that he was in charge and that content was king. You gentlemen, of course, know how to push a product. That essentially is your job. My presence here is for much the same purpose, simply to push a product. To acquaint you with an entertainment product which we hope and which we rather expect will make your product pushing that much easier. What you're about to see, gentlemen, is a series called The Twilight Zone. We think it's a rather special kind of series. Essentially, people watch television to get entertained. And the keynote of this series, the thing we're concerned with, the thing we're aiming for, the thing we're working toward is entertainment. This is a series for the storyteller, because it's our thinking that an audience will always sit still and listen and watch a well-told story. When we return, the story of the Twilight Zone and Rod Serling continues right here on Our American Stories.
American Stories. And by the way, go to Our American Network to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now we return to the story of Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone. Here's Jesse. When Serling submitted a script called The Time Element to CBS as the pilot for The Twilight Zone, CBS used the script for another show, The Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse, in 1958. Westinghouse, first with the future, presents The Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse. Tonight, we're gonna see a story written by Rod Serling and starring William Bendix. Our story begins in a doctor's office. A patient is sitting there. He walked into this office nine minutes ago. This would have been the original premiere episode of The Twilight Zone. The story concerns a man who has vivid nightmares about the attack on Pearl Harbor decides to visit psychiatrist. Can you tell me in one simple statement whether or not I'm off my rocker? Without dragging in Sigmund Freud and a lot of medical school English, can you tell me what's wrong with me? I can try. Well, I keep having this dream. I've, I've had it, I don't know, five or six times now. What sort of dream? A real one. Did you ever have any wacky dreams that seemed real? Oh, sure. I guess we all have. But have they happened over and over again? Recurred. Same dream. The same dream. Identical. It doesn't change. The twist ending reveals that the patient had died at Pearl Harbor and that the psychiatrist was actually the one having the vivid dreams. Dessa, bourbon on the rocks. Something wrong? Uh, no. Who's the guy in the picture? Him? No, the, uh, the other picture. Well, that's Pete Jensen. He used to tend by here. No? Jensen? No. Just look familiar, that's all. Where is he now? He's dead. He was killed at Pearl Harbor. The episode received so much positive fan response that CBS greenlit The Twilight Zone which officially premiered the night of October 2nd, 1959. There is a sixth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the sunlight of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area that might be called the Twilight Zone. A man suffering from amnesia wanders through a small town, desperately searching for people until it drives him mad. Please, somebody help me! Somebody's looking at me! Somebody's watching me! Help me! Please, help me! Help me! Help me! Unaware that he's part of a secret military experiment gone terribly wrong. What happened to him is that he cracked. Delusions of some kind, we assume. But let me tell you all something, gentlemen. If any one of you were confined in a box five feet square for two and a half weeks, all by your lonesome without hearing a human voice other than your own, I'll give you especially good odds that your imagination would run away with you too. 
For Rod Serling, the horrors that he experienced in World War II were always a motivating factor when it came to writing scripts. His ideas, however, came from a different place. Ideas come from the earth. They come from every human experience that you either witness or have heard about, translated into your brain in your own sense of dialogue and your own language form. Uh, ideas are born uh, from what is smelled, heard, seen, experienced, felt, emotionalized. Ideas are probably uh, in the air, like, like little tiny items of ozone. That's the easiest thing on earth, is to come up with an idea. And the second thing is, the hardest thing on earth is to put it down. Who was it uh, that said, writing is the easiest thing on earth? He said, I simply walk into my study, I sit down, I put the paper in the typewriter, and I fix the margins, and then I turn the paper up, and I bleed. From a series of student talks recorded at Ithaca College in 1972, Rod Serling shared his philosophies on writing and storytelling. The principal obligation you have as the writer is to go to a climax which interests and excites, and, and if it doesn't satisfy, uh, at least makes an audience sit up and take notice of it. It must also be valid. It must take the various character traits of the individuals involved in your story and make them do something or react to something as their nature dictates. This is to say that, for example, if you're dealing with a Quaker pacifist who is constantly being beaten around the head by the neighborhood bully and who suddenly at one given moment in, in his life says, I will not turn my cheek again, I will hit back, and does so, you must, have, you must absolutely believe that there is a moment when a man will turn his back on a fundamental belief and do something foreign to his nature. Or the reverse is true. You can show a bully who all his life has stepped on people, who does it out of a sense of sheer cruelty, who has no sense of the value of the dignity of other human beings or the feelings of other human beings, and in a given moment in time put into a position where he has a chance to save someone he couldn't care less about, but literally risks his life to do so. There must be a reason he does it and a believable explanation as to why he does it and the fact that you believe that he does it. This is the sort of thing you must do. The Twilight Zone won two Emmys and a Golden Globe, but even though the show had loyal fans, ratings were down. After five years and 156 episodes, 92 of which were written by Serling, he was done with the show. In 1964, he decided not to oppose its cancellation sold the rights to CBS. I take off and write out of a sense of desperate compulsion. I always write as if uh, I'd just gotten my x-ray from the doctor on Monday, and he'd best check with the insurance man and see whether or not the house is free and clear. I always write with a sense of desperate urgency. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a preoccupation with my own demise. I think I'm good for another 18 months at least. But I, I always write as if, gee, get it down. But very often, one of the major problems with strong writers who deal in dialogue above plot, which happens to be, I think, more my forte than, than plot, dialogue. If you look at some of the pages of the stuff I've written, and even some of the good things, shut your eyes, you won't know who's talking, because they all talk alike. And who do they talk like? Me. Now, that's wrong. And it's something I've got to lick over the years, but it's a, the most common literary problem, I think, of strong dialogists. On May 3rd of 1975, he had a minor heart attack and was hospitalized. A second heart attack two weeks later puts him in the hospital for open heart surgery. After 10 hours on the operating table, 
Serling suffered a third heart attack and died two days later. He was 50 years old. A symbol of a sad but rather commonplace event. An impressive funeral the deceased laid out in the most acceptable manner. But in this case, at the last moment, deciding that in matters concerning the trip to the great beyond, perhaps this trip wasn't necessary. Very often when you write for a living, you run across blocks, moments when you can't think of the right thing to say. Now happily, there are no blocks to get in the way of the full pleasure of Chesterfield. Great tobaccos make it a wonderful smoke. Try them, they satisfy. Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job on that as always, Jesse. And it's just so interesting to hear from the artists themselves and to hear, well, to hear him talk about his World War II experience. And before there was PTSD diagnoses, they called it shell shock, but nobody came back for therapy. I mean, you just, you basically had to suck it up. And he channeled all that, well, well, all that nightmarish uh, activity that he'd witnessed and all the nightmares he experienced after into creativity and channeled it into this remarkable art. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. I mean, uh, my favorite of the recent past months, we get to hear from Orson Welles himself talking about his life, his creative life, mistakes made, uh, ambitions. Again, this is what we do here every day on Our American Stories from their voices to your ears, we try to stay out of the way and we try to just keep it as real as possible, as authentic as possible. And these American stories, well, they come from every possible type of American. And this was one of the most creative Americans. And by the way, that he had to sell his franchise back to CBS. The very people who probably were skeptical about his work in the first place. My goodness, that just hurt me to hear personally. This is Lee Habib, Rod Serling's story, the Twilight Zone story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for another story from our friend Jay Moore. Jay is a retired history teacher from Abilene, Texas, who's known for hosting presentations about his city's history to over 900 fellow citizens that show up for them. And by the way, if you have someone like Jay Moore in your neck of the woods, send him our way. Send him to OurAmericanStories.com and send her our way as well. Today, Jay brings us the story of a friendship forged after the first time he saw one of the most powerful war films ever made. A friendship that would be even more powerful than the movie itself. Take it away, Jay. Well, back in the summer of 1998, one Friday night, my wife lined up a babysitter for our two young daughters, and we met some friends at the mall theater. We wanted to go see the newly released Steven Spielberg movie, Saving Private Ryan. It had rave reviews, and I was looking forward to seeing it, but I'll have to say, I was not ready for that movie. I was certainly not prepared for the intensity of that long opening scene. The depiction of the D-Day landing was unlike any movie scene I had ever watched. It was as though the cameraman himself was one of the soldiers, and in those jumpy staccato movements, 
puts you right in the middle of that jarring reality. The camera was in the turmoil. It wasn't filming like some removed onlooker, and you felt it. It was hypnotically gripping. Starting with those young guys who found themselves on board landing craft that was churning and lurching forward, and that would deliver them to what's going to either be a life-changing or a life-ending appointment. You could feel their breathing, their nerves, that cold trepidation. You saw their trembling hands, their vomiting, that look of a dreadful surrender that was mixed with a determined hope that they might somehow pass through that onshore crucible that was drawing ever closer. And then they reach the beach and the bow ramp drops and some don't live to make it three feet. The reenactment of the storming of Omaha Beach was raw. The realism was mesmerizing and even terrifying. It certainly felt as if I was in the middle of the chaos and that helter-skelter, every-which-way disorder. Bullets buzzing and pinging, that flying sand, blood-soaked waves, the gore, men destroyed by mortars and just cut down. And the psychological toll was so well portrayed, that look, that determined stare, knowing that if you wanted to live, you had no choice but to make your legs run straight at the death. You had to move, you had to move, move. Like most everyone, I found the opening scene to be not just jarring, but spellbinding and draining. And later I read that men who had actually been there, and others in similar fights, said that Spielberg got it right. So on the way home, I told my wife, well, now that I know what to expect, I think I'd like to see that movie again. And she said, no, it was too intense for her. Once was plenty. But I couldn't shake it. So on Sunday afternoon, I went back alone. I bought my ticket, but there was about 30 or 40 minutes before the show started. So to kill the time, I walked down the mall into one of the bookstores where I went over to the history section. That's where I always gravitate to in a bookstore. There was a man standing in the aisle. He was older. I took him to be about 80. He was intently looking through an oversized book, and I could see it was about World War II. Since he looked like he was old enough to have been in the war, and friendly looking enough to be interrupted, well, I pointed at the book and asked him, Were you there? He looked at the cover and said, Oh yeah, I was there. So I asked, Did they send you to Europe or the Pacific? He said Pacific. I asked him what branch he served in. He told me he had been a Marine. I remember being surprised. I think my mental image of a Marine even an older one, was different. He was shorter than me, maybe 5'8", but not anymore. He had silver hair, and it was thinning, but very neatly combed. He had a friendly face and an easy smile. There was a ready kindness that came through. He had blue eyes that glistened. To me, he looked like a grandfather straight out of central casting, a nice, approachable, soft-hearted kind of guy the kind of granddad who might give his grandson 20 bucks because he knew it would help. Just by appearance, he was not at all what I thought of when I heard the word Marine. But he said he had been in the 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, 2nd Marine Division. I asked where he was in the Pacific. He smiled and said, Oh, I got the full tour. Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Saipan. Ended up on Tinian. That's where I got my ticket home. As a history teacher, I knew a bit about what those names meant. 
Mostly, I knew that they just weren't cakewalks. Each one had been a serious fight that cost lots of Americans their lives, even more Japanese. Omaha Beach, four times over. And he told me with a hint of pride that on Tinian, he and his platoon had been part of a group that cleared the area for the airstrip that would later provide a spot for the Enola Gay to lift off from and bring an end to that war. The Battle of Guadalcanal was the first serious land offensive by the United States in World War II. Over 1,200 Marines were killed, over 2,800 wounded. More than 1,000 died at Tarawa. At Saipan, 3,400 more. And on the island of Tinian, there would be nearly 400 Marine deaths. And many of those were victims of fierce, suicidal Japanese forces screaming bonsai, long live the emperor. Looking at him in the bookstore, it was just hard to imagine that such a pleasant, older gentleman, just a guy in my West Texas hometown, had been there for all of that, for the bombings and the shootings and the destroyed lives. It seemed oddly incongruent that he and I would be standing together in the comfort of a bookstore on a pleasant Sunday afternoon. Then he surprised me. He asked me if I wanted to see his ticket home from the war. I said, sure, but I didn't really understand exactly what he meant. And as he put the book back on the shelf, I thought maybe he was going to take out his wallet and unfold some piece of paper or maybe a military discharge that he had kept all of these years. But instead, he unbuttoned the cuff on his left sleeve and he pushed it up past his elbow. When he turned his arm over, I saw his ticket home. It was a scar running from his wrist to the crook of his elbow. He said that scar had saved him from the bloodiest Pacific battle of them all, Okinawa. Now we were both looking at his arm, and I asked the obvious question, how'd you get that? He said, I got it one night on Tinian. He then went on to tell me this. We cleared that airstrip the last week of July of 44, and then my platoon moved on up the island. By August 1st, we had pushed the Japanese back to a pretty small area. They couldn't get out. So at night, they would come at us in these desperate bonsai attacks. Every so often, the big U.S. Navy ships offshore would fire star shells and light up the sky so we could see what was happening around us and try to pick them off. I was in a foxhole with another guy. He was a lieutenant named Stacy Davis. He manned the machine gun. I only had a carbine, and it kept misfiring. After a while, the rest of the platoon had fallen back. and It was just the two of us out there. As I listened to his story, I just shook my head. I said it all sounded pretty terrifying. He assured me it was. How old were you? He told me he was 26. He went on and said, Lieutenant Davis and I were in a foxhole, both on our knees. We were peering into the dark and listening with our senses on high alert. And suddenly, out of nowhere, a Japanese soldier ran right towards me, screaming with a wild look. His bayonet was coming straight at my chest. So I put up my arm and that thing went in here at my wrist and followed the bone all the way here to my elbow. And you're listening to Jay Moore from Abilene, Texas, telling the story of his encounter with a World War II vet at a bookstore on his way to seeing Saving Private Ryan a second time. I think I've seen that movie 50 times. And any time it comes on, well, I'm gone. And I won't come back until it's over because it's that good. And I learned just a little bit more about life watching it each time. I'm changed 
and the movie seems to change. When we come back, more with Jay Moore, this remarkable story, here on Our American Stories. stories and with Jay Moore's story of his unexpected friendship with a World War II hero, Joe Brown. He stopped talking and again we were both looking at his arm. So I asked, well what happened after that? And he said, well, we fought. He told me that a lot of folks don't realize that very often the fighting in World War II came down to a fight between two guys. And honest to goodness, hand to hand, winner-take-all fight, thousands of fights, all microcosms of a world war. With a bit of astonishment, I said, well, I, I take it you won your fight. He smiled, and as he rebuttoned his shirt cuff, he said, yeah, I won. He then said, you know, I have that bayonet. It was the real ticket home for me. And in the fighting, with that dadgum thing stuck in my arm, I managed to bend that metal bayonet. I've got it at the house. Dang, I'd like to see that, I said. He told me to come by, told me to call, and I could tell he meant it. So about a week later, I did call. And over the phone, he said, how about tomorrow? I rang the doorbell, and he and his wife invited me in. He said he had been born in 1918 in Wichita Falls. He was raised there with two brothers and two sisters. He told me that after the war, he took a job with an oil field service company and spent his career in that line of work. They had lived in Abilene since 1959, raised a daughter and two sons. He told me that he and his older brother Marcus had been together for much of the war, including on Saipan and Tinian. They both spent 32 months overseas. He told me that he made it home from the war on a Friday. He looked at his wife and said, and we got married on Monday. After a while, he asked, well, you want to see my ticket home? He and I walked down a short hall to a back bedroom. And there, on top of a dresser, he had already laid out the things he wanted to show me. There was a telegram that had been sent to his mother in 1944 telling her that her son had been wounded. There were medals and citations, one for a bronze star and two for silver stars, citing heroic service, devotion to duty, conspicuous gallantry. Although wounded, he continued to lead his men, inspired them by his example. And there were newspaper clippings. One was from the Wichita Daily News, dated October 1944. It was written after he and his brother Marcus had returned home. It told about the experiences of these two hometown boys. Lieutenant Stacy Davis had recounted for the reporter the details of that night on Tinian. Davis said, We were in the same foxhole. It was pitch dark. One of the Japanese charged our hole. I fired, but he kept coming. He leapt down, bayonet first, and the fight was on. The article went on to tell how this kindly grandfather, who was now standing in front of me as I read, how in the dark, 
with a bayonet stuck in his arm and that had severed an artery and sliced a tendon. How he grabbed the barrel of that rifle and fought his attacker, fighting with such strength and adrenaline that the steel bayonet lodged in his arm was bent at the shank. It told how he managed to get the upper hand and how despite his wound, he was able to pull the bayonet out of his arm and wrestle the weapon away from the Japanese soldier. After I read the article, he filled in more of the blanks, telling me that when the sun finally rose, he led the other walking wounded down the hill to battalion headquarters. His brother happened to be there, and he told Marcus about the fight. So Marcus went back to the area, found the bit bayonet laying on the ground. He brought it back so his little brother could bring it home. I asked about Marcus. He told me that in one battle, a bullet struck the front of Marcus's helmet. It whizzed right across the top of his head, exited the back. He smiled and said, it parted his hair. Doesn't get much closer than that. He said Marcus took his GI Bill, enrolled at Texas A&M to become a veterinarian. Then in 1949, five days before he was to turn 33, and having survived some of the worst battles of World War II, he lost his life in a motorcycle accident. He told me they named one of their sons for him. In that back room, I was hearing and seeing some of the most personal stories and meaningful trophies from the life of a man that I didn't really know. Just a nice guy I had met in the bookstore at the mall and struck up a conversation. And there, laying on the dresser, was the bayonet, the one Marcus retrieved and brought to him. One just like it was issued to every Japanese soldier in World War II, designed to be held in a scabbard attached to a belt so the soldier could either pull it out, use it as a handheld weapon, or attach it to the end of his rifle and just run right at you. Of course, that's how this one had been used, clipped to the end of a Japanese rifle. And that bayonet had traveled from Japan to Tinian, across the Pacific, and finally to the back bedroom of a home in Abilene, Texas, 1944 to 1998. I asked if I could pick it up, and he handed it to me. It was heavy, heavier than I thought it was going to be. It was about 15 inches long, had a single-edged blade, had a very menacing point. The metal tapered and was thickest near the handle, and right up next to the handle, the blade was bent. It was canted over at about a 45-degree angle, and staring at it, I asked, so with this in your arm, you grabbed hold of the rifle barrel, and you fought hard enough. You created enough torque to bend this. He said, I did. When I finally got that out of my arm, I managed to turn the rifle around. I tried to stab that guy, but it would glance off because I didn't know I'd bent the thing over. But I managed to use the butt of the gun, and it turned out all right. So you killed him with his own rifle? He nodded yes. It seemed surreal. A husband, whose wife was now in the kitchen. A proud father. A grandfather who put photos of the grandkids on the wall. A guy who mowed his grass and kept his cars clean and went to church. And who a lifetime earlier, for his country, had killed a man in a barehanded fight. Had won a victory in a world war. He handed me the bayonet's metal scabbard. On it was a white sticker that he had put there. And on the sticker, he had written in black ink, My Ticket Home from Tinian. It was the ticket to the rest of his life. That day at the bookstore, 
he pushed up his sleeve and showed me his scar. A scar he had looked at every day for 54 years. A tactile reminder of a defining day, of a victory, of a ticket home. Looking at him in the bookstore that day, I just couldn't get over how ordinary he was. An everyday-looking kind of guy. And had he not been reliving his past, thumbing through a book that piqued my curiosity, had I not asked, were you there? Well, I never would have stood in his back room and held a bent bayonet in my hand. At the bookstore, he and I visited, right up until I needed to head to the theater. I told him I was going to see Saving Private Ryan. I asked him if he had seen it. He smiled and said, no, I don't guess I need to. I put out my hand and said, well, I've enjoyed visiting with you. It's been an honor. My name is Jay Moore. He shook my hand. He shook it firmly, just like you would expect from a Marine. He said, I've enjoyed visiting. Come see me. My name is Joe, Joe Brown. Walking back down the mall to the theater, I just kept saying over and over, Joe Brown, Joe Brown. Could there be a more common name? I mean, how many Joe Browns are there in the world? How many Joe Browns did I pass every day who had lived extraordinary days, who had scars and stories and defining tales? Sitting in the darkened theater, the movie flickered, and again, I saw Tom Hanks and the others moving toward the beach, pretending to be nervous, pretending as though they were sick, and then acting out a gruesome, bloody landing. But all of it was fake. There was no real blood, no real injuries, no gore. There was no live ammunition. There was no actual dying. Just off to the side, there had to be camera crews and guys holding microphones and lights, directors and catering trucks and who knows what else but certainly no enemy. No actual foe crouched, ready to rush at you, screaming in the night, bayonet coming right at you. No actual life-or-death fights. No stomach-churning fear. And no two guys really fighting, rolling in the sand, sweating and swearing, kicking and clawing, clinching, yelling and squeezing, squeezing so hard, hard enough to bend steel. Twisted and tightened muscles, straining to reach that rawest, and that most primal of victories, and to have the chance for a ticket home. The movie remained powerful, but nowhere near as much, for I had just met Joe Brown. In 2002, a few days shy of his 84th birthday, former United States Marine Sergeant Joseph Burgess Brown passed away. He's buried in Abilene. His wife, Marguerite, would die 10 years later. Today, their son, is the proud owner of that bent bayonet of Joe Brown's ticket home. And my goodness, what a story, different than watching a movie. And you can just imagine a hand-to-hand -hand trench battle between just two guys and only one's coming out. This is not mixed martial arts, folks. And by the way, there are folks like this all around us. And it's what we do here every day at Our American Stories we do our best to take what were ordinary lives on the outside, but inside were extraordinary, and bringing them to light. Joe Brown's story, in a way, Jay Moore's story too, here on Our American Stories.